0: David Hershkovitz, and you're listening to Light Culture, brought to you exclusively by Burb, where cannabis clothing and culture intersect. Based in Vancouver, Canada, Burb strives to build on the city's legacy of cannabis tolerance and its gift to the world. BC Bud. Follow us on Instagram at shopburb, and subscribe to this podcast at shopburb.com/slash Light Culture. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to today's edition of Light Culture. My guest is Anya Charbonneau, who lives in Portland, where she is the founder and editor-in-chief of Broccoli Magazine. A photographer, formerly art director of the cool design magazine Kinfolk, she paused to consider the cannabis media landscape when Portland went recreational. A visual person, she was struck by the dichotomy between the old weed aesthetic and the world she inhabited and decided to do something about it. Thus, broccoli was born. And from the magazine's, I guess, statement, broccoli looks at weed from a culture and fashion perspective. So looking at all the different things that a person who likes weed might also be interested in or that we know they're interested in because we are these people. So um, I'm older than you are. I go back. So am I one of those people? Can I be one of these people as well as one of those people?
1: No, I think you can absolutely be part of the evolution of weed culture. I think that's why it's so exciting because it is something that changes often and can be so many different things to so many different people. So. From my perspective, it's all about how you feel in your gut. If you look at broccoli and you look at what's happening in weed culture and you can tie it back to the things that you were passionate about, then yeah, you're definitely, you're on board.
0: (laughs) Do, Do you have like an etymology of broccoli and cannabis, like where that came from originally? I know it now, but it was not familiar with it from back in the day at all.
1: From some of our research, we found that there's, I mean, definitely over a thousand slang words for cannabis all over the place. I know that broccoli seemed to, broccoli and salad seemed to be popular in Um, Some South American zones and also uh, over in Asia. We've done a a bit of a poll from some of our readers to hear what other people say and what words they use around the world. So there's an incredible variety. And we thought broccoli was really kind of fun and irreverent and available as a title, which is always kind of challenging when you're naming a project. I think it's been a fun one. It means that there's a lot of playful things to go along with it. And I think like weed, broccoli has kind of a bad reputation of being like the most hated vegetable from (laughs) our childhoods. But it's very healthy, we know,
0: from a wellness perspective.
1: (laughs) It can also use a bit of a, um, a revisiting.
0: rebranding broccoli. Well, it's interesting to find out that uh, there are all these different names for it, which are much more healthy, you know than the terminology generally associated in the United States for it, which you know has its own history. Uh, so maybe that's part of the rebranding of cannabis that you're very much uh, interested in as well.
1: Absolutely. I think one of the funniest ones we've heard, and I believe this was from a Spanish reader of Broccoli, um, they said that one of the slang words for being stoned is Bartolo. So, like, if you're like Bart Simpson, it means that you're stoned. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I don't know exactly where that comes from, but I thought it was really funny and really shows, like, how much people rely on pop culture and, like, secret references in order to talk about the culture.
0: Right, so I don't remember that the Simpsons, to my knowledge, never did a weed story, did they? Or maybe I I just missed it if they did.
1: I don't think so. I mean, I've definitely seen a lot of bootleg, stoned Bart Simpson imagery, but probably never part of the the canon.
0: But South Park this last season uh, was very deep into the whole story about the cannabis and corporate cannabis and really had a lot of fun with it. I don't know if you had a chance to see that.
1: I've seen a couple of clips from it. They're they're still pretty good at being on the nose with what, what's going
0: on. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of what we're talking about kind of is a subject that I've been grappling with as well because, uh, you know, because of these new times that we're in uh, with regard to cannabis and the idea of like cannabis as identity versus cannabis as lifestyle, right? So So much of cannabis has been about identity for so long because people have been stigmatized, and identified as stoners, if, if, you know, if you smoke weed, you are called a stoner today. I don't think that would be appropriate in the same way. So, you know, how do we, you know, and graphically, it's an issue as well, because I you know, know you're a designer and I've been an art director, very sensitive to those issues. And your magazine particularly really takes a jump away from any of the legacy kind of identity for the cannabis
1: Yeah, I think it's an interesting challenge because for a lot of people who grew up being afraid of weed or that they were told it was a bad thing, making it look really beautiful is a nice, easy first step to helping them feel more comfortable. And it helps them be able to share it with other people. So if they have something that's like totally neutral, like a magazine in their house, and they want to tell their friends that they like weed or they want to talk to their family or their partners. It's like a really safe first step into that conversation. And then beyond that, I mean, it's got a pretty surface, but then we're talking about a lot of important issues within it. So there's a lot of depth inside of that as well. But I also really do love the old school stoner aesthetics. So we try to pull that in through our design as well, like trippy, woozy distortions in the text. And we worked with some really cool photographers who are from older generations who were there taking their secret photos on their first grows and their backyard plant <laughs> cultivations. We've had a lot of interest from both the readers and from ourselves to get more perspectives from the people who were there because they really weren't being shown in the media, obviously. And it was so, you had to hide it if you were part of any kind of cultivation culture or grower culture. So those things are really fun to unearth when we can find people who are
0: willing to share. Do you, do you make a distinction between like cannabis art and psychedelic art? Or do you feel like that's all part of one thing?
1: I think they're kind of definitely in the same universe. I feel like that's pretty open to interpretation, depending on who you are and what you're into. I know that one thing for us that's been big, like our first issue, I think, was so popular because we used the hemp leaves in flower arrangements. And it was such a nice revisiting of the shape of the pot leaf and the look of the pot leaf. Because a lot of people associate that with, like, you know, buying a like tie-dyed shirt at the beach or whatever that they think is kind of corny but the plant is so beautiful and it was a nice way for people to like see it get the respect that they felt it deserved it was cool to hear from people who were farmers and people who just love plants that they really liked that
0: right and you know plus it has the weed obviously is not something you want to have around to look at in your house it's something you actually want to dig up and get rid of yeah but it's nice to look at it from a different perspective no of course I agree And especially if you get the flower, then it really gets something else, right?
1: Yeah, there's actually um, just a fun side fact. There's a grocery store chain here in Portland that started selling hemp bouquets last year in the stores. (laughs) So that's kind of wild.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's probably more like the future, right? What the so-called normalization, if it ever comes, why not? You know, like there's all kinds of different plants out there that, you know, people would like to have and look at. Why not? Yeah, that's uh, something uh, you know that it in the long term might have actually affect your magazine. And I'm wondering if you think about that, that as time goes on, where it becomes normalized, so will some will people really want a cannabis magazine as opposed to like a lifestyle magazine, which may or may not cover cannabis, or it has it, you know, implicitly included in the content, but it's not something that's highlighted.
1: Totally. I think in North America, especially, we've seen a lot of mainstream media start to do more cannabis coverage from, you know, everything from your classic product roundup to more in depth reporting. So people are seeing it in more places. And I do think that broccoli, it definitely is a lifestyle magazine. But one thing that we're, we're trying to do is not make it so out of reach aspirational. Like I like that broccoli reflects people's lives as they are and not like a life that they wish they had. We're very spoiled on the West Coast because it, it wasn't that you know, it wasn't that stigmatized before recreational legalization. But we have readers in all kinds of places all over the world. And whenever I hear from them, if they write to me or send me a message somewhere, it's a great reminder that like, most places, it is still extremely stigmatized. And you can't talk to your family or your friends. And it's like a secret. So for them, looking at something like broccoli is a nice sign that Someday things might change for them, and there are people like them out there that they're, they, they're not alone in being into cannabis.
0: Yeah, and I think that, uh, you know, should they have a copy of the magazine in the house and, you know, somebody randomly would pick it up, they won't necessarily make that connection that this is a cannabis magazine. I think they might be surprised to see content relating to cannabis in the magazine, That might or may not, you know, get their interest, but I don't think they would go, oh, no, you know, it's high times or something like that, that, you know, this isn't, we don't want this around the house.
1: Right. Yeah, we love when people do a double take, but we do also have readers who will email me and ask, like, does it come in discrete packaging because they live in a state where it isn't (laughs) legal or they're worried about their landlord seeing it? Or I had someone cancel a subscription because they were moving out of state to an illegal state and they were still really worried about that.
0: Wow, I didn't realize it was that bad. Well, like, you know, Playboy magazine, didn't it used to come in a plain brown wrapping envelope of some sort? So people wouldn't know that you were subscribing to that.
1: Yeah, the, the big bookstore chain here in Portland, they have a cannabis section, but it's locked up. <laughs> Even oh, now, no. Really? I think they've, they've started to move things out onto the shelves, but I thought that was pretty funny. In like,
0: Portland? My why? God. <laughs> Yeah, I mean it's true cuz I I'm always like kind of keeping my eyes open for books and you know reading material about cannabis and it's I'm always surprised. I'm sure they're out there, but there's no like section or you, you really have to go wandering around the bookstore and all these different areas to find it. Um, might be well, different. Well, yeah, it can be
1: challenging to categorize because it does touch so many different parts of life. So it sort of depends on what the individual focus is. Like there's been a lot of cookbooks coming out. So that's an easier one because you put it with the cookbooks, but then you might not know how to find it if you're looking for something so specific. I think everyone's feeling it out. They're trying to find where weed fits.
0: So how much has changed? in? you started the magazine like two years ago at this point?
1: We launched it at the end of 2017, and it feels like it's been a lot longer. (laughs) A lot has changed.
0: Yeah, like what, for example?
1: The biggest one is definitely CBD's rise to fame. I think we had one one company that we worked with on the first issue as an advertiser who had a CBD line. And now it's like no one even knew what CBD was then, but now obviously it's everywhere. So that's a tremendous shift in the culture and the awareness, but obviously it comes with its own challenges.
0: Nobody really knows what um, the effects are or the doses or, you know, how to really, you know, manage your intake of it. I was speaking with someone yesterday who was developing CBD line of pet food, and he's just found that he couldn't get it distributed widely enough because of people's concern with the CBD and what, uh, you know, the liability issues that might be associated with it, so he, so he decided to just put it out as a dog food without CBD for the time being. But uh, yeah, people are really looking at it. As the, the world is a little bit crazy legally with regard to all this stuff. Nobody really knows you know, what, what's going to happen. In, in terms of your own experience, though, I've read that you came from Vancouver prior to moving to the U.S.,
1: yeah, I'm from British Columbia.
0: From British Columbia. And then you moved to Vancouver because my, the company that I work for that sponsors this show is called Burb, and they're a dispensary in Vancouver. So I've been going there, you know, off and on more than ever <laughs> recently and getting to know the town. And I'm very curious about your experience there, which was what, how many years ago at this point? Wow, probably 16.
1: 16. I've been in Portland for 15 years.
0: So how was it like then with regard to cannabis, as you recall? Because that's where you actually started to smoke, I read.
1: Yes, when I first moved there. That's like the big city if you live in British Columbia. So I remember when I lived there, you could buy weed at the record store, and they would always get raided, and then they would just keep doing it. So (laughs) it honestly, it's been kind of like that. There have been collectives where you could buy cannabis, I think they started doing some delivery services more recently. I also remember you could go to the beach. There's a famous beach there, Rec beach, and there would always be vendors just strolling the beach with edibles and treats for sale. But there was sort of an unspoken role. It was it's a nude beach. So if you were a vendor, you had to be naked. So there huh. were some a few kind of famous weed dealers who would who that was like their their circuit. So there were a lot of, you know, very open but still technically underground channels for getting weed. And of course, in British Columbia, like, it's there's a lot of hippies there. It's not a very uh, uptight culture. So it's, it's felt normal there for a really long time. And then now it's just seeing the, you know, federal legalization, bring in the corporations and how that has been expressed in different provinces, it sort of varies. Like there's obviously, you know, the few companies who own almost everything And then we're only just seeing the businesses come back online with their new licenses to kind of feel out what the culture is going to look like moving forward. So it's still very much in flux right now.
0: So are you nostalgic for how it was as opposed to how it is now? Do you think overall legalization, obviously it's a good thing for many different reasons, but do you feel that something was lost in the process as well?
1: Oh, absolutely. I think legalization comes with its downsides and, Federal legalization, it's so interesting to see what's happening in Canada because it almost feels like it wouldn't be a great idea to have it federally legal based on the kind of like monopolies that are happening there on the corporate level. That's kind of a red flag. But I don't know how the U.S. would treat it because we do have such strong states' rights. But I think the knowledge that I have about cannabis that would have been almost impossible to gain when it was illegal is like – it. To me, that makes up the difference for how it is right now personally. I'm so grateful to be able to learn so much about it and really understand my body and mind's reactions to it and know that I can make one choice versus another choice and kind of dial in my experience more efficiently. It felt like a, a big roll of the dice before when you would just get whatever you got from your dealer and that was all you knew. So the kind of information we can get about what we're consuming is so cool to have and I think it's really powerful for for people who need it for all different reasons. So that's one of the huge upsides is the accessibility factor.
0: So when people invite you to give talks and you can't really, you know, ignore the fact that you're representing cannabis today. I'm representing part of it, at least. Yeah, right. But I mean, as much as you can. But, you know, back to that old question that we started with of identity versus lifestyle. So how, you know, to me, that's just like such a big, important leap. And a lot of brands are looking, you know, for that. Or a lot of people in the industry are trying to figure out how do you, make that leap into a mainstream in a way that understands that in the real sense, you know, can you be invested in the industry and also just have it as one of those things that you're into, you know, how, what's, where's the balance? How do you balance that? And also for brand identity, which I know you work with advertisers and events and things around that. How does that go? your communications with the advertisers outside the industry? Are they open to your uh, working with you?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think it's interesting to see who's willing to touch it. We've done, um, like the brands are, they have a harder time if they have more like corporate funding or big investors that they're more wary about touching it. So on the The non cannabis brand side, it's a little bit sketchier. The smaller companies are more interested because they have less stakeholders that might not be, that might not approve. But then the people who have been really open are like people in the fashion space, the art space. Um, we had a chance to do a really fun installation and talk at MoMA PS1 in New York. And that was like, that was such a cool opportunity to get to share what we love about cannabis and plants and the talk we did was all about flowers and cannabis culture and how we kind of express the way we feel and think through plants. So there have been a lot of interesting opportunities that have popped up from different sectors that are very creative, that are really excited about what's happening in the space. And I think on the identity versus lifestyle topic, I mean, for us, we are in total control of what we're making. So it's coming from a very personal place. And I think that that like ref- is definitely reflective through all of the different activations that we do. So while broccoli could be a brand or is a brand, it's still very much about stories and editorial. We're not trying to sell something to our audience all the time. So that's a really nice way for us to be curious and playful and really explore a lot of different opinions and stories in a way that I think brands have a harder time doing because when you're a brand, all of your stories need to circle back to one message. But we have more flexibility because we get to like explore all these different channels of what cannabis could be from many different perspectives. So it's a really fun opportunity to see it from a lot of different angles.
0: Yeah, and and as a magazine, it's kind of interesting as well. As you know or may know, I had a magazine for many years. We had a paper magazine publishing monthly (laughs) for many years. Obviously, that whole business model has collapsed. It's very difficult to do that. So in the meantime, here we are with, like, it seems like a surge of new magazines, a lot of it growing out of this whole cannabis world, and especially with regard to women, Right, that there's like a whole voice of women's voice in magazine publishing in general, but specifically in uh, with regard to cannabis. I know there's um, Gossamer as well, which also has Vancouver roots. Right.
1: Yep. Totally. Secret Canadians.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So you guys are the pioneers of the new publishing, and but I saw that they also had an article about you about Bradley. Oh yeah, we did a
1: profile here in Portland
0: yeah so that's really weird because, as in my you know years of working in a magazine, it would be unheard of to do a story about a competing magazine uh so to, I mean this sp- <laughs> go ahead. <laughs>
1: Uh, I was just going to say it was it was so um, kind of um, incredible because we launched at almost the exact same time, like unbeknownst to each other, and then have so much synergy. But I think we're doing something different as well. So the cool thing about the cannabis space is that there's so much room to explore so many different ideas. So I mean, there's a cooking cannabis magazine, there was a queer cannabis magazine, but I think it only made it two issues. And i They're working on something digital now, I believe. But yeah, there's like, you could have all these different verticals and all these different expressions and find an audience because no one else has tried. (laughs) So there's still so much room and they're really great to
0: work with too. Yeah, but the audience, I mean, how big an audience do you need and what what do you have to do to go get them? I imagine a lot of social media. What, What are the techniques these days for attracting an audience to a magazine such as yours?
1: Well, we started just by experimenting on Instagram while we were producing the first issue. So that was kind of a good little playground to explore the aesthetic and see who might be interested before we launched. And then once we launched, because it was something so new, we were lucky to get a lot of press, which... Like led a lot of people around the world to understand that the magazine existed. So that was a big help for us. Events, people love events. So we've done a lot of different types of events from um, launch parties to workshops. We did a terpene-based workshop up in Vancouver with Tokyo Smoke that was really fun. Um, We did a three-day festival here in Portland last spring, which was a really wild, (laughs) wild ride. That was really cool. Um, We've got a bunch of stuff coming up this year, too. We're doing some field trips, like smaller-scale events to visit weird, kind of lesser-known places in different cities, starting with Portland. So there's a lot of ways to make your community feel like they're involved in the story, and people have just been really supportive. So it was just the right time, I think,
0: too. Well, field trips, I was reading about that. So, So to me, that sounds like, you know, I'm simplifying, of course you know, let's get stoned and and walk around the museum or something like that together as a group. Is that something like what it's like?
1: Yeah,
0: okay. <laughs> totally. That's what it's going to be like. <laughs> Good. Yeah, no, it's a great idea.
1: A lot of our events so far have been in, you know, mo- usually it's like LA, New York, for us Portland because it's home-based, so it's a little easier to make things happen here, but we want to make sure we're going to different cities around the country and hopefully do some international visits as well. And when you're in a new city, it's like, how do you want to celebrate this place that you're in? And I feel like visiting kind of lesser known cultural Zones can be really fun. Like, everyone is going to know the big art museum, but will they know the little weirdo art museum that's slightly out of town? So that's what our first one in Portland is. We're visiting this rock and mineral museum that's about a 20-minute drive out of town, so we've got a bus coming to take us out there. And it's so cute. It's in an old mid-century home. It was a couple just rock hound collectors that built up this amazing collection of rocks and minerals and gems, and the space is still very much trapped in time, so it's a... it's going to be a bit of a surreal experience and really fun to experience as a group. And I think most people don't even know it exists. So we get to highlight something cool in our local community at the same time.
0: Yeah, I think that's like a great concept, personally. I think I would I would possibly even go on it, too. Is it only for women or anybody can go?
1: No, all broccoli stuff is for all genders who want to be part of it.
0: And I also, I listened to your podcast which I also like very much. That your two hosts, Lauren and Menley, they're amazing.
1: Yeah, they're incredible. I'm like the people that I've met. You know, the people we've met along the way. For that cheesy line, it, it really is the most special thing about doing this project because knowing women like them. You know, we create projects so that we can highlight lots of different voices and get to work with people that we really admire. So I'm so grateful for them for hosting, and I think they they've got some magic going on for sure.
0: And uh, speaking of men, but and your workplace is all women. I understand. Or do you you have remote? Right? You somehow figured out how to produce a magazine remotely, and and all of your employees are women. Is that by design or just happenstance?
1: I think it's a little bit of both. I mean, the people that we that I. Started the magazine with from the very start. We all knew each other. We worked together before. So, and they all happen to be women. We have mostly female contributors, but there are, we, we definitely take contributions from all different genders. Anyone who has the right voice for the, the way that we tell stories, it's totally open. I do love working with women. So I think that is a pre- personal preference. But <laughs> when there's, when the right person comes ar- along and the right collaborator and you just get along and you see the same, you've got... Shared values. I mean, that's all that really matters.
0: Yeah, because the role of the women in in the cannabis world has been is only being defined now, really, because it's always been somewhat of the girlfriend or some you know who didn't really buy her own weed or you know just somehow you know hanging around, uh, but not really taking the lead in in the culture the way they are now. It seems.
1: Well, I think that like most things, it's been. Hard for women to get recognized for the power that they do have or the influence that they've had. One of the things that we're doing for our summer issue is we've we're talking doing interviews with three different women who are were involved in either cultivation or one of them was even a, a, a cannabis smuggler in Jamaica, and so we're talking to them from their perspectives of what the was what they were up to in you know the seventies and eighties and you know, they were there. They were always there. I think that's true for women in history all the time is yeah. they're always there. People just don't know about them because the men told all the stories moving forward into the future. Fair enough. So to be able to tap To be able to tap into those stories is so important to us. And it's something we do both on the cannabis topic and then also across arts and culture. So we have a lot of history pieces in the magazine, too, that tell you about, you know, the pop artists that you didn't know from the 60s or, like, just really interesting women from history that are lesser known but arguably more impactful.
0: Yes. I, I actually know someone, a woman, who was telling me her stories not long ago about you know smuggling you know going to california loading up the car bringing it to new york you know the the weird crazy adventures that go along with that and you know doing very well apparently eventually being able to buy a house with that i don't know if off if you want to actually connect with that person i could do help you do that
1: yeah that would be fun they they can be harder to find because they're so used to being under the radar and like Attention was considered kind of bad, so it's, it's a cool moment now for people to be able to, like, share their stories in a more public way.
0: Right, and they have old photographs and things like that.
1: Oh, my God, I love the old photos.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's my
1: favorite thing.
0: Um, you know, I was also speaking to somebody younger who was telling me that young people aren't smoking weed that they prefer Coke and ketamine and opioids or, you know, whatever, and that it's not really as much a part of their culture as it has been for, you know, you and, you know, people before you. So I'm wondering if you see a time where it won't really have the kind of resonance in the culture that we have today because it is, you know, it has been kept underground and illegal, so it's been forced to, you know, develop out of the spotlight. And, you know, sometimes that's a good way to grow, right? You grow better, stronger roots. But once exposed, you know, it's no longer as interesting.
1: Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. I feel like every generation kind of has its signature vices. And I know I've heard that teens and college students are drinking less because cannabis is more available and they're... I mean, that's it's true, actually, I think across the board that a lot of people are consuming less alcohol in favor of weed. I don't know a lot of party kids, so I don't know a lot about like the maybe the more party drugs like ketamine or coke. But i ha, I mean, I think right now the teen drug of choice is just jewel and vaping. So we'll kind of see what happens with that. They're not smoking cigarettes, but they're just definitely vaping like crazy. Well, teen,
0: I'm not. I'm talking about older than teen. Yeah, teens because they're you know in high school they're illegal no matter where you look at it. But you know, like the older people in their twenties and thirties uh, who are go out to the clubs and party, that it's just not part of their culture in the same way that it has been. That's just. I was just curious if you had heard anything of that nature. Yeah,
1: I mean, I feel like part of that has to be that it's not. It hasn't really been that easy to discreetly consume cannabis if you're in a club setting. So like if you have a pill, that's easy to take. But if you have, you know, flour, what are you going to do? Smoke in the middle of the room? (laughs) So I think that might be a big part of it. But of course, now that there's so many new ways to take cannabis, that might change. But I don't know. I'm not really a club club expert.
0: People who will go out and, you know, take some tincture, some oil or an edible or something like that so that that will become the prevalent way of consuming cannabis, Out, not smoking because so many people are so, you know, worried about ingesting smoke and in their health and lungs and all that.
1: Yeah, I think one of the big developments that's going to be interesting is um, faster onset times. So as people start developing products that are edibles or tinctures, sublinguals, all of that, they they can come on a lot quicker. So they're, it's going to take some of the guesswork out of the edible process. I think one of the reasons people maybe aren't leaning on that quite yet for socializing is because, you know, they're not going to feel it for a good one, two, maybe more hours later. And that's pretty you know, that's far into your evening, depending on what time you're getting together with people and socializing. So, when when companies figure out, like, quicker onset times, like, you know, 15 minutes, something like that, then that might change things even more.
0: Yeah, so how would you feel? Would, would you be missing the plant aspect of the whole, you know, the horticultural side of, of what it means to be a consumer today, you know, getting your hands on it, the product in that way?
1: I don't know. I think depending on who's making the product, no matter what form it takes, you can tell who's really passionate about the plant and the whole production line and how they farm. I feel like the transparency that people are demanding from the companies they're buying from in cannabis is super revolutionary in terms of consumer products. So when I, if no matter what form of product I'm taking, if it's an edible or, you know, a bath bomb or anything, I generally know a lot about the company that I'm buying it from and what what sort of vi- what their values are in terms of cultivation and production? So I usually feel pretty connected either way because you can see you can follow that chain back to its origin.
0: So how did you get so deeply invested into cannabis personally, uh, from the time you were you know casual user starting uh, experimenting in Vancouver and to the point where the bath bomb or whatever is there a pro- you know if there's a product that has uh, some CBD or cannabis that, you know, let's try it. You're you're ready to try it at this point, right?
1: Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I know my dose fairly well, so I'm not going to— I mean, I still have never done a DAB. And oh, I'm really? kind of intimidated by that. Now, well, that's so strong. Yeah. And I, I need to kind of like stay on the lower end for my, my dosage.
0: <laughs> but, no, well, that's um, true. I mean, I'm so glad you said that because so much of the culture, especially if you look at Instagram of, uh, you know, hashtag cannabis and things of that nature, it's all people like taking like the biggest hits of all time, you know, one dab or bang, you know, bong, triple bongs, and you name it.
1: Right. And it depends on your tolerance and, you know, your personal body chemistry and everything too. But yeah, I think that the place that I see that being a challenge is in the retail area. So if you go to a dispensary, there's still a really strong chance, even in a place like Oregon, that the person behind the counter selling you the the weed still just wants to push forward the one that's going to get you the most high. And that's like a really big disconnect I think often between the person selling it to you and the actual person who wants to take it. Cuz a lot of people are first timers or they're new or they know that they need something that's more chill. So, yeah, you're really like really putting a lot of trust in the person selling it to you. But personally, I like a smaller dose. I like to keep my tolerance a little lower so that I'm not constantly having to build up, you know, I need more and more and more to get to the same place and to a earlier question that you asked about like the evolution of my relationship with weed i i was like a you know evening chill out smoker for a really really long time and it was really only until the culture started shifting here in oregon when legalization happened that I was starting to see new perspectives. And then in starting to work on the magazine, at first we thought it was gonna be something just super weird. We're like, let's make a weird weed magazine and just have a lot of fun with it. So we're still doing that, but not quite Uh, you know, conceptual for conceptual's sake and weird for weird's sake. Because when I was talking to people and doing research before production started, it was so obvious that the people who needed this magazine the most were not just like art weirdos. It was normal people who use weed or are interested or had like really personal, passionate stories about how it changed their lives. So stuff like that, like you need to give it sort of the breathing room and respect that it needs on the page. And we really like it really opened my eyes to a lot of the different perspectives that people had with their relationship with weed. And it also made me reexamine and kind of constantly reexamine what it means to me. So as a person who felt like a very casual, just for fun to relax user, I had never really considered like, oh, could I use it in a more therapeutic way if I had the right, you know, in, in the right moment and with the right product. So now I feel like I have a lot of interesting like pieces in my toolkit of different ways I can use cannabis for different moments. And that's something that I never used to have because I just didn't have the level of awareness that I have now spending so much time with it.
0: Yeah, I'd, I'd, um, you may be familiar with April Pride. Yes. You know her, right? So I, I had interviewed her for, for the show as well, and we were talking about magazines, and I, th- I believe it was Broccoli that we was brought up, and I asked about why... What is the, why do we need these magazines? What is the the purpose they serve? And one of them, uh, you know, reasons in addition to some of the points you made was the pure sensual experience and the visual experience. She just, she felt like enjoyed like, you know, smoking a joint and then looking at the magazine for the visuals and the whole tactile experience, you know, that enhances, that, that. that's part of what the plant does. And that's, uh, you know, a real good function for a magazine, I think, today because uh, that's, you know, it is so visual.
1: Yeah, we love tangible things. And, I mean, thinking about how, what would the platform look like as we were starting it, it just did not make sense both from a business perspective and from an experience perspective to do something purely digital. Like, when I smoke weed, I don't want to be on my computer the only time I do is if I'm on, like, a very, like, down-the-rabbit-hole image search. I can get pretty deep on that. But, like, I don't want to learn stuff while I'm stoned online. It's just not fun for me. I'd rather go for a walk. I'd rather kind of experience my, the space around me and have that that kind of tactile expression of what I'm up to. So, yeah, doing it in print was definitely and it's more fun. The design is so fun and we get to do, you know, we were using some fun foils on the cover and cutouts. So, it's I just love print. So, it felt natural both for us and for the reader.
0: <laughs> yeah, and it's I mean, for you as a it's nice to have unlike digital, which you always feel like there's more work to be done. In print, you've done, you're finished. It's printed it's, you can't correct anything, you can't change anything. And it's great to have a product in your hands that uh, that you feel good about. You know, I just made this. Look at this. This is fantastic. Totally. Yeah. To so see that, the
1: stack growing is really exciting. We're almost in double digits, and that's pretty. That's pretty cool. Yeah. I feel like another reason why. Um, and this wasn't super strategic, but it's something I've thought about more and more. Moving forward, is that like looking at a magazine is a totally private experience too. No one's tracking your clicks. No one knows what you went, where you clicked before you bought XYZ product. And for a lot of people, I think that's still really important because they are worried about, you know, showing that they like cannabis at all in any space, digital or in real life. So it's just like a little more private and a little more personal, I think, as well.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. And also, uh, I understand your magazine is being distributed globally that that's part of your intention, though I'm sure it's an expense at the same time. You think it's worth it?
1: Oh, absolutely. It was kind of a big shock, actually, at the very beginning when we launched. We knew that we'd have, you know, the West Coast Reader. I figured people were interested in New York, although they were still kind of cagey about talking about it. We I remember emailing with someone who didn't even want to email about it because they were so paranoid about being connected to cannabis in any way from New York. But that's obviously changed. They're super into it now. Um, but the demand for international shipping for the magazine was so immediate, and like we weren't prepared for that. So, by the time we had the second issue out, we had a network. Um, we work with a great distri- their distributor, but mostly we use them for fulfillment in Germany. And for some reason, the German Post is really cheap shipping. So, we're able to ship all over the world, free shipping. Wow. And I think we have. Subscribers in over forty countries right now. Every so often, we get it. We get an order from a new country, and I'm like, "Woo,
0: exciting!" <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's fun, and especially if you get into the airports. Eventually, that's another expense. But um, yeah, it's always nice to see your magazine in some far off land at the airport or some magazine store.
1: Totally. Yeah, and it's cool because then you know that there's at least one person out there that has a story and something personal about weed that maybe they'll share with us. We've been doing some fun um, surveys for our readers. We'll just do a digital survey and then print some of the best answers or favorite answers in the magazine. And we get get answers from almost every continent each time. So we get these nice little snapshots of like, what's weed culture like? That was a question we asked um, in our sixth issue was like, tell us about the weed scene in your city. And that's how I learned about the Bartolos, (laughs) Bart Simpson reference of being stoned in Spain. Um, And then for our summer issue, we just asked our readership, do you consider your use to be recreational, for fun, medicinal, or like something in between? And the answers have been really interesting.
0: Do you get any one side like winning the the survey? Do you have an answer? What is most of your readers feel about it?
1: It's actually quite a flexible thing. People really acknowledge that cannabis can be almost anything. I was expecting people to believe that it was medicinal. So we, we actually asked for, um, uh, we had a pitch call for writers and we wanted to talk about this thing. Like, what is it? Is it recreational? Is it medical? A lot of people who are like diehard cannabis people, there's this saying that they say is all use is medicinal. And I think that's so fascinating because is that what everyone thinks? Or is that just like what one sector of the weed world thinks? And for our readers, I think most of them who answered are not, They don't work in the industry. They're just people who use cannabis. And most of them did not say that they thought it was medical only, but they would say, like, I use it when I have a headache or I use it when I'm stressed out, but I also use it just for fun. So one of the nicest answers was, um, rather than the word medicinal, was just therapeutic. And I thought that was kind of a beautiful way to spin it because medicine holds so much weight, that word. Like, do you need to be sick to need medicine? And like, what defines medicine? It's such a weird question that I don't know that cannabis is actually that thing for everybody. So it was just a really interesting thought experiment. And I was really happy to see answers from from all over the world.
0: Yeah, it's very interesting. And it's very interesting to speak with you as well, Anya Charbonneau of Broccoli Magazine. Thank you for being on my show. And I really enjoy your magazine. And I look forward to seeing future issues.
1: Sweet. Thank you for having me.
0: Thank you. You've been listening to Light Culture, brought to you exclusively by Burb, where cannabis clothing and culture intersect. Please follow us on Instagram at ShopBurb and subscribe to this podcast at shopburb.com forward slash Light Culture, as well as iTunes and all the regular distribution platforms.